When I was younger, my dad owned a uh, manual transmission truck, and he wanted to make sure that my brother and I knew how to drive a stick. And so he started teaching me when I was 10 to drive a stick, um, which may have not been the best idea, but it did work. By the time I got my license, I could drive a stick. My friends, on the other hand, most of them could not. And so I kind of felt like, well, my dad taught me I should teach them how to drive a stick. And so I took one of my friends out, 16-year-old, just got his license, brought him out in my dad's little Toyota truck. And we did okay. He did a whole lot of stalling and jerking and all those things that you do when you don't know how to drive a stick. But it got really bad when we were on this long back kind of road. It, there were a bunch of neighborhoods around, but not a lot of shopping. And so people would come out of it. It was this long road that ended by going uphill. And he got right up, to, and it's a stop sign. It's not a, a light where you can just go through the stop sign. And he got up there to that stop sign, and I don't know how many times he stalled that car. What I do know is I kept looking back, and it was growing. This line of people behind us was growing. And eventually, a cop came. Just went along the side of the, you know, the shoulder and went right up and pulled up. And he comes up and he comes to my side of the car and uh, says, hey, boys, uh, what's going on? And my friend is so freaked out and he's just sitting there gripping the thing and he goes, I'm trying to drive my friend's car and I can't. And the cop looks and says, well, I've got a solution. Why don't you let your friend drive? And we eventually got out of there. But have you ever stalled a car and had that feeling of just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this place. And, and especially if you start realizing your stall is impacting other people. And, and maybe it's not a car for you, but a place in your life. Have you been or are you at a place where you feel a little stalled out? Maybe it's spiritually, and you're, just, you're kind of there, and you're like, I just don't really know how to go forward from this point. Or maybe it's professionally. You're at a place in your career where you feel stalled out. Maybe it's a relationship that you are in. But you're in a place where you feel stalled out, and you're not sure how to push forward. As we start a series on making my life really count. This morning, we want to talk about how do I give it gas? How do I get it in gear? How do I start that move forward when I feel stalled out? If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And what I want to suggest to you is that the ministry of Jesus had stalled out. That he was actually frustrated in this passage, that he has been on the scene for quite a while now, and he has been doing miracles, he's been doing exorcisms, he's been teaching in such amazing ways that the crowds are so big he can't even go into some villages. He has over and over again shown that he is something very different than anybody else in his power, in his teaching, in the way he engages people. And yet, when chapter 16 opens up, our main passage starts in 13, but I want you to see a little background. Go to verse 1 of chapter 16. 
I think the ministry of Jesus had stalled out. He wanted to move forward, and there were things standing in the way. This is what happens in verse 16, 1 through 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Hey, they have been watching him. They have seen him. They have seen him do everything from heal somebody's hand to raise the dead. And everything in between. He has walked on water. I mean, he has done so many amazing, miraculous things. And yet, here they come. Just give us a sign. Just prove that you are who you are. If he's done all of that, what exactly could he do to actually prove who he is? I mean, where's the point where you've you've done so much and he doesn't have a next step? But that's what they want. And his answer is basically to say, you should know. I mean, you can read signs all over the place and you can't read this. And the ending, look at verse four, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I've had enough, is what he says. I, I have done so many things, and you guys are still just looking for a sign. I want to get on with the mission. I want to get on with why I'm here. And you guys are stuck back here trying to get me to do a sign, do a miracle, prove something to you. And so he gets in a boat with his disciples, and unfortunately, his disciples seem to not be much better. Turn, I'm telling you to turn the page. You may not have my Bible. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, this is a pretty significant thing. Right? They don't have jobs right now. They don't have a 7-Eleven they can drop in and grab a snack. Hey, they don't have any of that kind of thing. They are living day to day, and they don't have any bread right now. They have no food. Jesus, in verse 6, says to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. Hey, Jesus says to them, In light of what just happened, the guys who don't get him yet, he says, Beware of their teaching. They are hard-hearted. I have given them sign. I've given them opportunity. I've done everything for them, and they still refuse to believe in who I am. Beware of them. But the disciples are going, oh no, we don't have any food. What are we going to do? He's mad at us because we didn't bring the bread. They're very lost. And his response is kind of weird. Right? Look at his response. Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. That's a strange response. I mean, honestly, what happened is they just misunderstand. Hey, they don't get that leaven, later on Matthew tells, leaven is teaching. He's not really talking about bread. But instead of Jesus saying something like this, wow, you guys are slow. I mean, really, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this. You're missing the symbolism. It seems like it should be an intellectual thing. And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. That's where he goes. And look look what he says to them. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not, do you not get me? They didn't get me. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And then look, he just repeats it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
He doesn't like restate it in some other way. Here's what I think is happening, and it's important for the overall message. I think that their lack of faith in who he was made it so that they had to worry about bread. And they were so worried about bread that when Jesus said, beware of the leaven, that's where their minds went. The issue was not understanding because they're going to get it now. As soon as he reminds them, I can provide for you, they're going to get it. The issue was faith. The issue was they still weren't thinking of who he really was. And so they had to be fearful of not having bread. Both groups, all the villagers, nobody is getting him. The Pharisees just keep giving us signs. Just keep proving yourself. The average villager, more miracles. Give us more bread. The disciples, we don't know what's going on. We're afraid. And I would suggest to you that at this moment, Jesus is maybe more alone than he ever has been. Have you ever been in that spot where nobody gets you? Or at least you feel that way. Have you ever been in that spot where you feel utterly alone, even with people around you? Because nobody seems to understand you. Nobody seems to get where you're coming from. Here is a moment where Jesus is, nobody is getting him. And because of that, he can't move forward. This is where I feel like he's stalled out. He wants to get over this stuff. Forget the signs, forget the bread, forget the miracles. We came here for the kingdom. We came here to heal people, to bring them the the love of God into their lives. And you guys are so stuck on me trying to prove myself. You're so caught up in the fears because you don't know who I am that we can't move forward. And so here's what he does. Verse 13. 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. 25 miles north of where he tends to do his ministry. He leaves where everybody's normally at. He leaves where all the crowds you know him are at. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? All right, now, in Greek, this is what he's doing. Okay, he walks the 25 miles. He takes this journey. He gets away from everybody. And here's this question. What are people saying about me? It's an open-ended type of thing. I want to hear from you right now. Tell me what they're saying. I want to know what you're hearing. I want to know when we go into a village and I'm teaching, I want to know what they're saying over there by the building. What are they whispering? What is it that people think that I am? Do you guys, my disciples, know? And here's their response. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The response is this. They think you're pretty amazing. Some of them, they think you're John the Baptist, like you came back from the dead. Some of them think you're Elijah. Where Malachi in the Old Testament said Elijah will come, they think you're that. You're fulfilling that. Some of them think that you are a prophet like Jeremiah. You are some amazing, supernatural type of person here. Those are all decent things. They're paying attention, and you have to wonder. If you're a disciple of Jesus, and you're going through villages with him, and you overhear somebody go, I think that's John the Baptist. At some point, as a disciple, you must have thought about that. You must have together even said, what do, you, do you guys think he's John the Baptist? I mean, do you think he's this? Or, or, or do you think yourself as a disciple? No, 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 he's more than that. 
but you must have thought through some of these things as others are saying them. And then he turns to them and just try to picture this moment for with me. Hey, they are in Caesarea Philippi. This is a place that was rebuilt by Philip the Tetrarch. Right? That's why you have Caesarea Caesar Philippi, Philip, right? rebuilt by him. And as it's rebuilt, they fill it with all of these statues and monuments and temples to Baal, to Pan, to all of these other gods. They're surrounded by this stuff. And Jesus, in the middle of all this stuff, says, hey, you could almost see, look around at all of these things. I want to know, who do people think that I really am? And as they're saying it, he stops them. Verse 15, but he said to them, but who do you say I am? Right? And it's not, it's not this. Right? Who are people saying that I am? And who do you guys think I am? No, it's who are people saying that I am? And he listens and he listens and he listens and he stops them. But I want to know who you think I am. And it is a question that could be asked to every person in this room. But who do you say that I am? Because the key to getting out of the stall is his identity. That's where Jesus takes this whole thing. Who do you say that I am? And here's Peter, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How apropos as he stands among all of these statues of gods that aren't real. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the hopes, the dreams, everything we've been looking forward to. You are all of that. And you are the son of the God who is alive. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I just, I, I picture Jesus almost going, oh, somebody's getting it. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The key to them moving forward, and I would make this argument, the key to everybody in this room really moving forward. There's other options. There is Pan and there is Baal and there's all kinds of things that you could use to move forward and some of those things will help you move forward, but none of them will help you move forward in the way that Christ can. And when they get to that moment of stalling out, what Jesus does is he directs them and says, who am I? Because my identity, what you think of me, is the foundation, the key. It is fundamental to what I want to do in your life. I was a teacher for a number of years at Trinity Christian Academy. And I taught juniors and seniors in Bible. And there was a point where I was teaching a group of juniors. And I was having some serious issues with a particular car dealer. And it was a car dealer that honestly, they were really good to us. 
They had always done great work. We never felt like they were taking advantage of us. It was Huffines in Plano. And we drove a Sonata, and we would bring our car in there, and, and they always took care of it. Um, but there was one time where the work that they did was not, it wasn't what they said they were going to do. And the bill was not what they said the bill was going to be. And it was not lower. And I was just, I was frustrated because this was not what we expected. It wasn't normal for them. And I had made a call to, into them, and, and the guy that was telling me he couldn't do anything. And I said, I want to talk to a manager, but there wasn't a manager available. And I was just, I was frustrated. Well, that frustration didn't go away when I got to school. I was still frustrated, but I was trying to control it because I'm around a bunch of students and I teach Bible you got to have a certain attitude when you're teaching Bible. And so I taught one class, and they left. And then I called again because I'm trying to get through. I'm trying to get this thing solved, and it's just eating me up. Well, as I'm talking to them and saying words that they're not appropriate in high school anyway, but certainly not at TCA, I'm moving over into a corner because two students walk in my room. And I am trying my hardest to control. I'm just like, I'm trying to control my anger and my language and everything else. I'm, just, I'm so frustrated at this point. And eventually I get off the phone and I walk back over and the two students walk up to me. Two boys, juniors in high school. And one of them, Sam, he says, Mr. Bowman, can I help you? And I'm thinking to myself, you're a junior in high school. What are you going to do? I mean, you can barely get out of bed in the morning to make it to class, let alone solve my issues. I didn't say that. This is what I thought. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's okay. I'm, just, I'm having some issues with this car dealership. I can, I can fix it. And, and he goes, do you want me to help you? And at this point, I'm like, no, get out. That would help me. Get out of my room. The other kid goes, do you know who this is? Yes. It's Sam Huffines, my student's. It was Sam Huffines. <laughs> it was the son of the owner of Huffines. And I, oh, um, yes, could you help me, Sam, please? But everything changed when I recognized who that was, when I realized his identity, because he was more than the guy who was originally working with me. He was more than a manager there. He was the son of the owner. And he could just pull out his cell phone and say, Dad, can you fix this? But his identity, me knowing it, me believing it, me it changed how I approached the situation. That is what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. It's what he wants to do with everybody here. That the key to moving forward is recognizing who he is. And believing that. Because here's the thing. You want your life to have significance. The most significance it could ever have is Jesus working in it. There is nothing that will ever match that. I'll explain that in a minute. There is nothing that can compare to Jesus working in your life. But for him to do what he wants to do, you have to embrace him for who he is. Let me show you why. Go back into our text. 
Look at verse 18. Jesus is about to say something crazy, ludicrous, ridiculous. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I am going to build my entire enterprise on you, and the gates of hell can't overcome what I want to do. And here's the keys to the kingdom. That is crazy talk. That is ridiculous. Hey, here's what he says. And by the way, for one moment, let me just say briefly, because some of you have probably heard this passage before. Hey, Catholic view. You are the rock, Peter, on which my church will be built, and that sets up the papacy. Hey, Peter's the first pope that goes forward from there. Over here, standard opposite side of like a Bible church hey, would be this. You are Peter, and on this rock, meaning the confession you gave, or even me, Jesus, on this rock, I will build my church. Right? There is only one reason in my mind and in most scholars' minds that this debate even exists. And it's because the Catholic side probably took it too far and the Bible side decided to react to it and go the opposite direction. The most plain sense of this passage is this right here. Peter's name means rock. It's a play on words. And it is Jesus saying to Peter, on you, I'm going to build my church. And if you doubt that, John 21, it's to Jesus that he says, feed my sheep. Acts chapter 1, it is Peter who says, we've got to replace a disciple. Acts chapter 2, it is Peter who stands up and gives the first gospel message and invites everybody in. It is Peter who has to be there when the Samaritans come in. It is Peter who is there to say, here's all the food, and I'm not just going to Jews, I'm going to Gentiles. He really does build the initial early church on Peter. I mean, we have the evidence of it all the way through Acts. That doesn't mean you have to take it this far. It doesn't mean necessarily that Peter was the first pope and that every pope after him has that same authority. I'm not saying it couldn't mean that. I'm just saying that's not the plain reading of the text. And neither is this. It is clearly a play on words, and the New Testament bears it out. When Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the God who is alive, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you. Not only that, the gates of hell. And this is unfortunately a bad translation because hell makes us think usually of devils and Satan and all that. It's the word Hades in Greek. And it's about death, not about demons. You tell me, what person do you know in your life today who has died and then went, you know what? I'm going to defeat death now. I'm going to come back and not be dead. Death has taken everybody. Death is the enemy that cannot be defeated by us. And Jesus says, even that enemy cannot defeat what I'm going to do. What I am about to accomplish, even the most powerful enemy known to mankind, cannot defeat it. And on top of that, Peter, the keys there, I am inviting you to actually participate and standing at the door of my kingdom. You know those jokes, St. Peter at heaven's gates, and uh, it's right here. 
Right? Now, the idea is kind of there. The idea was much like what he did with the disciples. Do you remember when he sent them out? And he said, go out to the villages and preach the gospel to them. And if they will invite you in, come in. Break bread with them. Be with them. If they reject you, what are you to do? Shake the dust off of your feet. They are being judged and walk away. The keys of the kingdom. Right? It's not this. It's not Peter being able to go, well, I like you, but I don't like you. You get to come in. You don't. Um, that's not the idea behind it. It's that you are going to be integral to my enterprise of building a kingdom, Peter. And all of that is going to happen because you believe in who I am. Now, why is that belief so necessary? Peter is going to be thrown into prison. Peter is ultimately, according to tradition, he's going to be crucified. And he's going to be crucified upside down so that it won't be, he won't be crucified like his Lord. Right? Why do we need this kind of belief? Because of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. What it's going to take. That belief is what is going to bring you through the most radical things in your life that Jesus wants to do. That faith in that person, believing he is that amazing, divine, awesome, perfect savior person of all power, all of that, that is going to get you through everything he wants to do in your life. Right? And, and I'm, I'm going to break it down into three things I think are vital. Right? Three things that he would do in your life embracing who he really is, right? Number one, he will make the mundane count. He will make the mundane sacred. I mean, part of, of what we're looking for when we want value in our life is we're looking for that big giant thing. We want to conquer something. You know, we want to be known. We want to have our name up on the wall, right? With Jesus, you don't need that for your life to be significant because Jesus wants to work in every relationship you have, in every little thing that you're doing. He wants to work at the way that you're sitting at your desk when you're in your office. He wants to work at the way that you get coffee in the morning. All of that becomes more significant as you are related to the most significant being in the universe. All of that takes on more meaning. But there's a, a second part to that. And this is what you see when he talks about his church. And he says, even death can't defeat what I'm doing. The greatest things that you can do as a non-believing person in Jesus Christ will never have the same significance as the greatest things that you do as a believer in Jesus Christ. For this reason, whatever you do for him goes into eternity. It is lasting in a way that the things not done for him are not. Everything you do for Jesus Christ keeps going. Everything you do not, it will end here. And number three, Peter will become a new person. Peter will change. Peter will go from a guy who had so much passion for Jesus 
that he was willing to take a sword and jump out on a Roman legion, a thousand men, and say, I will fight you by myself for Jesus. He had all the passion. But Peter also seemed to show over and over again that he totally didn't get it. And he was a little bit of a bumbling fool. And eventually he would say, I don't know Jesus. And he would turn on him. But when he fully embraces who Jesus is, it not only allows him to make every part of his life sacred, it not only allows him to accomplish something and that thing to go on into eternity, but it changes Peter. When we embrace Christ, it can change us. The more that we accept him for who he is, much like my students, when he was a student, it was one way that I was going to look at the situation. When he's the son of the owner, it changes it. I have a new perspective on the same situation. When we embrace Christ for his fullness, it can give us a different perspective on the same situation. We can see everything differently because it can change us. I'm going to give you an example that I came across of somebody that was radically changed by believing in Jesus in the way that we're talking about. Her perspective on life radically changed. On April 27th of this year, an EF4 tornado tore through at least 40 miles of Arkansas. Um, In one particular town, there was a house with a red front door that a family had moved into a month before this. That house was completely ripped from its foundations. The mom, April, and the dad, Daniel, both lived. Their eight-year-old son, Cameron, and their seven-year-old son, Tyler, both died in that tornado. One of their friends, Jessica, and the mom was pretty beaten up. In fact, you can find a picture of her online. I mean, she's, she was pretty beaten up by this. She's in the hospital, and her friend, Jessica, writes a blog, goes in there and talks with her and records some of what this conversation that they have. Um, and it went viral. It went all over the place. This is from Jessica. I've always called her the cheerleader, speaking of April, the mom who had lost her two sons, and who was in the hospital. Because she was, she was one once in, in the pom-pom and pyramid sense, but because she still is now in a Bible and faith sense. She is who I call when my faith is stretched. And every time I would hang up the phone with her, I'm reminded of how big and how good and how strong my God is. Well, I've spent these couple of angry days questioning why God would take those boys And why he would mess with his best cheerleader. Because who could still cheer for God after this? And then she goes into the hospital. And this is what she records. My beautiful friend, my cheerleader, laid in the hospital bed with her broken legs and battered beautiful face. And held my hands and told me not to be angry. Because her God is good. She said this, I have peace. I know I have more pain to go through that I probably can't understand, but I have a supernatural peace. 
I don't know what God has for me and my husband that our boys couldn't be there for, but I do know that he is good. His plan is good. And then listen to how Jessica reflects on this. I don't understand this kind of faith because I think every parent who has heard this story since Sunday has wondered, how do you live through that? For those of you who have been worried about April and Daniel, worried they would not be the same, that they couldn't carry on past this loss, please don't worry anymore. I have seen her hope. It is anchored in eternity. It is the kind of hope that saves people. And that's not just the optimist in me talking. For those of you wondering how a mother could serve a God that might allow this, understand that Tyler and Cameron knew Jesus. Just a couple of weeks ago, they led a friend to Christ. They aren't over. Their story hasn't reached the end. They aren't really even gone. They've just moved for now. And we will miss them. Like April told Tyler, we will miss them. And while none of us understand it, we must take up her lead and know that even still, God is good. We must understand that while we love those boys, God loves them infinitely more. He loves them perfectly. And his knowledge of their lives and their futures, God still took them home. But he left their mom and dad, and somehow, though every bit of that house was ripped from the foundation, April and Daniel will live. And they will tell this story. They will honor Tyler and Cameron's lives. And masses of people will know Jesus because of this story, because we cannot fathom this strength. And when I left the hospital, I just cried. And I thought, she is so strong. She is so faithful. She is so selfless. She's so beautiful. And it hit me. And this is it. April is all of these things because she allows of herself, even in the midst of the tragedy, to be a reflection of our strong and faithful and selfless and beautiful Savior. Because the truth is, God is good all the time. That is what it means to embrace Christ for all that he is. That even something as horrible, horrific, awful, unexplainable as the loss of a seven and an eight-year-old boy, a mom of those boys can, through tears, because it is real. It's not like she's in denial going, I just, I just love God. This isn't happening. That is not it. It's that she knows and loves him so much that even in that, she can say, God is good all the time. That is what it means to believe in him fully. And that is why when they have stalled out, Jesus doesn't give them a bunch of lessons on things. He doesn't say, just go do this. He doesn't get on to them. Because what he's asking of them requires them to know who he is that he could actually support what he's asking of them. And that is the foundation for the kind of significance that God wants to bring in every life. Knowing who he is and being able to rest in that no matter what is going on in life. first time that my dad took me out in that manual transmission, I had mostly learned how to drive a car because he started me at nine to drive a car. And, you know, but that was when we didn't wear seat belts and there weren't car seats and, you know, it was a different world. 
And so he's got me out there at nine learning to drive. And at 10, he says, let's, let's learn to drive the, the stick. And so he takes me out and we're, again, out on back roads, you know, so I don't kill anybody while I'm out there trying to learn how to drive. And, and as we're heading forward, and we're doing 45 or something like that, and we're heading toward a train track. And a train is heading toward the part where we're at. And I lock up. I mean, I, I don't know at this point. What went on in my head initially, I, I think, was I've got this gear here. I've got multiple pedals down here. I've got this thing in my hand. I don't know what to do. I think it all just kind of flooded my little 10-year-old brain. And, like, i got to stop this car, though, because there's a train. And I'm pretty sure if I take it on, we're going to lose. My dad, very calmly but firmly, just said, slam on the brake. Just slam on the brake. And somehow, even in the midst of me going, I, I don't, like, I've got this thing over here, and I've got these things over here, and I've got this thing right here, and I don't know what to do, and I, I, I don't know what move to make. Even in my confusion and my fear and everything else, my dad knew what he was doing. And I just slammed on the brake. And it wasn't a pretty stop, but it happened before we hit the train. So it was a good stop. It was a beautiful stop. I'm still here today because of it. But that's, that's it. In your confusion and in your pain and in your anger and in your joy and in your stalledness, if you can believe in that voice, if you can believe who he says he is to be, it will move you forward. We'll talk more about that next week as we continue this series and we talk about some of the things that stand in the way even if you want to say, okay, I believe he is who he is, but I don't know how to live into that, or I, I have questions about it, or I struggle with it. Um, we're going to talk about some of those next week. And then our final week, we're going to get very, very practical. Right? What are the actions I take to live that life that says you really are the Lord of all life? And I'm, I want to follow that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your son for who he is. I pray, Lord, as each of us um, spend whatever time we will pondering this, as we continue to sing songs and as we come forward for communion, as we go through our week, Lord, that you would implant in us, in our hearts and our minds, in our spirit, who your son is. And that wherever we are, we might grow in it if we're in a place where we struggle with who he is, that, Lord, maybe you would give us the faith just to take a step, to embrace it in a greater way. Because, Lord, we know that knowing your son opens the door. So, Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.